guys always make me want to quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> My name is Cliff, and I'm an alcoholic. And a very, very grateful alcoholic to be here tonight. Uh, I so appreciate the invitation. And Dave, I'm a big crier. A lot of you know me. I'm a big crier. I don't usually start crying, no. He nailed me. Damn. So what the hell? Uh, I kind of enjoy crying now. You know that? Uh, feels good. Uh, very, very grateful to be here. Uh, I got on the plane and realized I left my uh, blazer in, in the car. And the only guy that was fat enough to loan me a coat was Black Bart. So thank you, Bart. It doesn't go anything with anything, but what the hell. It's the only coat he had. Uh, I liked your, I love your theme. Oh, my sobriety date's the 13th of January, 1970. I was thinking how I was going to impress you that damn Peggy gets up here. 64. She did that on purpose, I'll bet. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, I said I'm Cliff Roach and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, for many years I taught speech and speech communication and things like that. And one of the units we used to push was a, on, on, the, on the science of semantics. And on not, not, not grammar or anything like that, but how words came about and how words affect us and the meaning and the depth of words. And uh, one of the, the catchphrases in that, in that semantic field was the, the meaning of words are not in the words. They are in us. And I was thinking how my idea of what an alcoholic is tonight as opposed to the first time I heard the word. The first time I heard the word, I was I just won World War II. <laughs> and I was going to college in uh, San Jose, California, on the GI Bill. And my buddy and I would walk to school every morning. We'd marched. We'd been indoctrinated. And we'd cut through St. James Park every morning. It's right in the middle of town there. One morning we're cutting through the park and we heard this noise. And we turned and looked, and there was this remnant of a human being on this bench. He was so dirty, he shined. And it, all kinds of things were coming out of everywhere. And uh, the stench was, un we both just wretched. And we took off through the park, and we got to the other side of the park, and uh, my buddy Richie said, that guy was an alcoholic. So I knew what you looked like. And I made a little picture in my little mind, and that picture damn near killed me. That picture I carried in my mind for another 20 years almost killed me because I knew what an alcoholic looked like. Now, I was 20 years old then, and within two weeks, I did about like a 48-hour blackout. You know, much of my life is hearsay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, until later, it became her say. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I did 48 hours in a complete blackout. Now, it took me months to find out all the things I did. Do you have any of those experiences? There's always somebody around to tell you, though, you know. So I pieced it together over a period of time, and I had this beat-up old car, and I had driven back and forth from San Jose to Santa Cruz on this little mountain highway about nine times, in a complete blackout. Went to a bar in, in, in Santa Cruz and they threw me out. I had bitten the bartender in the face. Big deal. You know, come on. I hate bigots, don't you? But anyway, I had my new, my new best friend that I had met that day. Uh, he worked in a yacht club or had worked before he got fired. He had worked in this yacht club. So we went down and broke into the yacht club and stole the starting cannon and came back to the bar 
and fired it in the front door. Which pretty much cleared the place out, huh? Whereupon the gendarmes arrived and beat the crap out of us and put us in jail for several hours and let us out. And the saga continued. And it blows my mind today. The guy on the bench was an alcoholic. <laughs> Uh, I met my wife, Pat, uh, who's going to talk tomorrow. Don't miss it. <laughs> uh, she remembers the real story. What the hell do I know? You know, Whatever she says, I said, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, but I met her there in college at that very, around that, no, a little later than that. Uh, she was down on Skid Row looking for an alcoholic to abuse her. And... Uh, You're looking to be abused. You got your guy here, I'll tell you for sure. And we entered this 20-year suicide pact together. <laughs> and we, I don't know about you guys, but we suffered, uh, we had a dual disease. We, we had alcoholism and Catholicism. <laughs> Consequently, we had a kid every nine months and 20 minutes. Greatest losers of Vatican roulette the world has ever known. Every time I come out of a blackout, what the hell is that? They're all right when they're little, you know, like kittens. <laughs> but they grew. And we had five of them, and the older they got, the weirder they got. God knows the word or she got. How's the head nut? I don't know. I, I sponsored a lot of guys in AA uh, who were successful drinkers. Whatever that means. You know what I mean? It means I guess you didn't get in trouble. Uh, and uh, they drank well for years, and then they crossed the invisible line and became alcoholic. Now, when I was 16, I took a drink of alcohol, and I crossed the invisible line. I've never been anything but an alcoholic. I've never drunk socially. I don't know what the hell they do. I don't like them. Did you ever drink with those weenies? Come on. You know, you take the cap off. You go, they say, I'll get it. I don't trust people like that, do you? Well, anyway... Uh, I was never a good drinker. I was, I was a fighting drunk. I loved to fight. Oh, I love fight. I like, I like fighting better than sex. That's step two. Uh, and it's a wonder I liked it because I wasn't damn good at it at all. I used to take these legendary beatings. <laughs> and I was proud of them. I was talking to somebody before the meeting. He reminded me of a story, I, I, I don't tell it much anymore, but he reminded me, so I'm going to tell it now. It was a, the time I went to Long Beach with four of the guys from Bakersfield. We went down to Long Beach to have a good time. Fun. And uh, I woke up in the morning and I thought I was blind. I had taken this terrible beating and it bled face down on this pillow all night. And it dried. So when I came up, the pillow came with me, see and I'm smothering in there. I'm smothering it. I was in a panic. There's a sink in the corner. And this other guy and I threw water on the pillow. <laughs> Damn near drowned then. We just took from finally went. <coughs> there was a big mirror on his dresser. And I said, put the pillow back. <laughs> oh, my God. I looked like Quasimodo. I oh. But I'll never forget the guys with me. They said, you were great, Roach. You got up 19 times. <laughs> kind of friends I had my whole life. You know? But uh, after Pat and I were married and started turning them out, uh, I became a school teacher. <laughs> you know, the guy bites bartenders in the face becomes a school teacher. Uh, that's the hobby, lighting up. Uh, and uh, I taught up in the San Joaquin Valley for uh, three years, and then we moved to Oceanside, California, where we still reside today, where I intend to die. 
Uh, it's a beautiful, wonderful place to live. And I got a job at Old Oceanside High, and I became a very successful teacher. If that's not an oxymoron, <laughs> you know, <laughs> successful and teacher don't usually go together. Uh, but I was. I was a very good teacher. I loved the kids. The kids loved me. Uh, you know, I was effective. Somebody asked my wife one time why her husband was such a good high school teacher. She said, well, he's a very well-educated adolescent. <laughs> I hate it when they're accurate and cruel. <laughs> but I was a good teacher. I loved it. Uh, did a good job. And, of course, being Marvin Macho, uh, you know, macho drinkers are always stay macho, no matter how old you get. Uh, but so I became a surfer dude after I moved to Oceanside, naturally, you know. Hey, dude. Uh, oh, I loved surfing. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Had to give it up when I was 74. <laughs> Should have seen me out there that last couple of years. <laughs> Kids loved me, though. Kids thought I was great. Help Mr. Rooks back on his board. There you go. I really, I really miss it. I miss it like crazy. But anyway, another teacher and I, uh, another surfer dude, uh, we, we were going to get this surfboard shop down at the beach there in Oceanside and give surf lessons and rent surfboards and fix surfboards and sell surfboards and never have to teach school again. And the mayor of the town donated us this little building right on the beach. I mean, right at the end of the strand, they're right on the water. Can you imagine for a couple of budding drunks? It was all beat up. The building was all shot. But we fixed it up and put windows in and got a refrigerator. <laughs> uh, two months later, we got some surfboards, too. Oh, big hurry there, you know. Had these two chaise lounge chairs. We became sunset connoisseurs. We used to measure sunsets by martinis. I was a mixer, I'd say. It looks like about an eight tonight, Woody. <laughs> Some guy come down in the evening and said, I'd like to rent a surfboard. Screw off, Charlie. We're watching the sunset now. <laughs> the best one we ever had was a 15 martini sunset. Oh, you should have seen it. It was glorious. And the sun and Woody and I went right together. <laughs> they found us in the morning with sunburned mouths. You remember that? But we did very well with the shop. We really did. And uh, But winter came, and it was freezing cold. And in February of 1965, I went down to the shop on a Sunday morning to repair a board. It was freezing cold. We weren't doing anything at the time. And uh, I had a hangover. <laughs> Sunday morning. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was really thirsty. <laughs> And I went to the refrigerator to see if there's a Coke or something in there. I was just so thirsty. And my buddy Woody had been there the night before, and he'd left about this much vodka in a half-pint bottle, just a little dinky half a drink. And there was some orange juice in the refrigerator, and I thought, that would put the fire out, you know, because I felt so lousy. So I mixed up that little dinky drink and drank it. Went on about my business. Now, I was not a morning drinker at the time, but it just seemed like a good idea that morning, you know. And I'm sanding away on the board, and that little half a shot of vodka just got in my bloodstream. And my mind talked to me. My mind said, shame on you, Cliff. Shame, 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 shame. That was Woody's booze you drank. Guys, don't get ahead of me. Then my head said, why don't you go up to the liquor store and get Woody a pint? That's the kind of guy I am. That afternoon, I got Woody a fifth. And I just ended up boreyed drunk, my dad used to call it. Just falling down, resin all over me. The board was screwed forever. The shop was a mess. Crawled home on my hands and knees 11 blocks. Literally crawled home on my hands and knees. Got up the next morning and called Ralph for an inordinate amount of time. Remember Ralph? Ralph. Ralph. I hate it when you get down just you and Ralph. I hate that part. Somebody was talking about me tonight about, uh, about puking. 
I was at Johnny Harris's meeting a little while back, and two people that shared earlier, they said something about puking everybody, but, ugh. What the hell? Is it Al-Anon meeting here? What's going on? They're not a drunk in this room that doesn't know about puking. I was sober five years. I was sober five years. I'd been to the Southern California Convention, came back home. Uh, we ate in this restaurant on the, on the way home, went to bed that night, five years sober. And I woke up in the middle of the night, oh, and I was back in the in front of the porcelain altar, down to the green stuff, you know what I mean? Just the green ones. And it was like four in the morning, and I had a spiritual awakening. I realized that I had not puked in five years. And I don't know about you, but I puked at least three times a week. At least. I thought everybody did. I had not. Another thing I realized there on my knees that morning was, I don't like puking. I never liked it. Just went with the territory, that's all. But that morning, I really called Ralph for an inordinate amount of time. And I got up and said to her, she had a pre-alignment tick in her eye by then. It's a marine town, we couldn't let her go downtown. Uh, I said to her, i got to do something about my drinking. I'm getting drunk when I don't even mean to. Usually I meant to, you know. And she, little devil, she'd cut this thing out of the paper about the A&A. <laughs> I don't know why she thought to do that. And uh, little Ad, I don't know how many of you are newer here today. Uh, only Ad we ever had, as far as I know. Only Ad we ever need, as far as I'm concerned. It says, if you want to drink, that's your business. If you want to quit, call Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're new in this room tonight, you're surrounded by people who will go to the ends of the earth for you if you want to. And if you'd rather drink, hey, we have a salute for you. <laughs> That's kind of a personal salute of mine, but because I don't care. If you would rather drink, I don't care bully for you. But if you want to quit, oh, these people, they'll, they'll carry you on their backs till you can go yourself. But anyway, I called the A&A, and old Stan came out and got me and took me to, at that time there were like 14 meetings in the whole area at that time. About the third night I realized that I had been hasty. Uh, I had overreacted here. Because, you know, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm highly educated. I have degrees, you know. My late sponsor, Bill, used to say he's been educated far beyond his intelligence. <laughs> but I mean these people. You know, I'd be six or eight of them around a table just... Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> that collective IQ of an orange. <laughs> I tried to help them, for God's sakes, but... Uh, about the third night, I was laying a little Nietzsche on him. <laughs> and this guy said, we keep it simple here. Uh, I said, no kidding. <laughs> Honest to God, Leroy. So I resigned from AA. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Really upsets him, doesn't it? Cliff who? <laughs> and I'm not crazy about this part of the story, but uh, it's, it's the story. You know. For the next five years, I was an AA loser. And I mean I was a nickel-plated loser. If they ever have a loser's Hall of Fame, I'll have a bust by the front door. I mean I was the last row with the smirk. Know-it-all, over-educated, pompous ass, jerk, loser. <laughs> and I'd come to AA, and those guys would try. So they say, Cliff, if you give it a try, your life will change. Your life will get better. If you go back out there, it'll get worse. And I would say, <laughs> and I'd go back out there, and it would get worse. And I'd come back, and they'd tell me, and out over and over. 
I would come to AA for like 40 days, then be drunk for two years. <laughs> That's a slip. <laughs> I'd come to AA for 30 days and be drunk for a year and a half, you know. On and on and on and on. One time I came in in the afternoon about 4 o'clock. <laughs> and they quadro-stepped me. Do you ever have that four guys just getting all... Oh, I got the message that day. I got, I levitated out of the building. And I had a, my buddy Big John, who was worse than me, and I went to Big John's house. John came to the door and said, John, we're alcoholics, we have to go to AA. Big John said, oh, okay. <laughs> Three weeks too long. And uh, But I led Big John to the meeting that night and became his sponsor. And the next day, we both got drunk. <laughs> a few months later, I got John out of jail. It's a minor thing. Throwing his wife through the window or something. Forgot to open it. <laughs> and uh, it cleaned him up in this alley. You know, that, that guy puked on his chest. Remember him? Uh, never caught him. And anyway, I, we, I'm driving him home. We're coming down by Torrey Pines uh, Golf Course there on the old highway. And... Uh, I don't know what got to me that morning. I'm telling him about alcoholism. I said, we're alcoholics, John. And uh, obsession of the mind, the craving of the body. and I should have taped it sent it to you guys. You know. And John got tears in his eyes. He was so moved. He reached over and patted me in the back of the neck. He said, well, it's good to have a buddy like you, Cliff, somebody who cares. I said, okay, John. He said, why don't you pull a George's here? We'll have a drink. I said, Okay. <laughs> And that's the way I treated uh, AA. I think I almost died of alcoholism, number one, because of that picture in my head, and number two, because I was a functioning alcoholic. I would guess probably 95 to 97 percent of the people in this room are people just like me, functioning alcoholics. The experts, <laughs> whoever they are, uh, I think a Ph.D. who still drinks, that's an expert. Uh, <laughs> the experts say that 95 to 97% of us who die of the disease of alcoholism, who become dead from alcoholism, are people like moi, functioning alcoholics. I go to work every day and I do the job and I don't miss it. And I do it better than you. I do the job better than anybody. I'm a goer and a doer and an achiever. I'm a functioning alcoholic. <laughs> My buddy at home says, a functioning alcoholic is one whose wife works. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell that in an Al-Anon meeting, I'll tell you for sure. That, mm, they don't think that's funny. Mm, makes them go. You're married, guys. You remember that? Yeah. Don't you think you had a few too many? If they say you had a few too few, that's your problem, lady. Have a couple and loosen up, for God's sakes. And mine was a counter. They're the worst kind. Counters. That's your fifth one today. Shut up and eat your breakfast, will you? Leave me there. <laughs> Leave me alone. But I did. I was a goer and a doer. Uh, the week I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, this time, this time, 35 years ago, the day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, this time, I weighed 163 pounds. Had like 4% body fat. I used to surf for like three hours and then get out and run five miles. I could bench press 285 pounds. Took me 25 minutes to pass a mirror. <laughs> for God's sake, don't ask me for directions. I'd say it's right over... I was one of the top three debate speech coaches in the nation. 
<laughs> so, is that, that's for you? Uh, being one of the top three, roughly equivalent to being one of the top three prostitutes in Elko, Nevada. <laughs> but among speech coaches, it's a big deal. I became a top speech coach by mistake. <laughs> Principal called me in one day, and he, uh, he'd gotten this flyer in the mail about a debate in a speech tournament 30 miles down the road at San Diego State College. And he said, you know, you're teaching a speech class. I'll bet some kids in your class that get a lot out of that. You ought to do that. So I was in big trouble with him, so I said, what a good idea. You know how we are. <laughs> so uh, I found about four or five dodos and wanted to give it a go. And we were down the road 30 miles to San Diego State. We got down there. We were absolutely blown away. We couldn't believe it. There were like 50 schools participating in this tournament, maybe 500 contestants. All the boys were in three-piece suits with vests and ties, girls these lovely business clothes. <laughs> We're in Levi's and sweatshirts. What do we know? And they killed us. They slaughtered us. We did not win a round. They ground us in a church what they did. <laughs> I don't know what kind of drunk you are, but I don't care for losing. It ticks me off to lose. And I went in the coach's room. There are about 20 of them in there. They're all pals, buddies. They've been doing this for years and years, and they snubbed me, it seemed to me. <laughs> so I hung around all day. You know how we are. They snub you more that way. One guy there really pissed me off. He had a lot of hair. That bothered me right away. Yeah. No, not just hair, but it, that steel gray hair. Perfect, gorgeous hair. Took nine barbers to get it right. You know, He had about a $1,000 suit on the other coaches did this when they went in front of him. <laughs> About two in the afternoon, this gray-haired Cretan suddenly turns to me and says, Where are you from? God, I was grateful to be spoken to. But I said, Oceanside. He said, Oh, where's that? <laughs> 30 miles up the... I don't know what kind of drunk you are, but he gave me a resentment. <laughs> and I went back to Oceanside High, and it took me four or five years. But I built a speech team. I built a juggernaut speech team is what I did. I built a powerhouse speech team, and I did it with sheer hatred. <laughs> Never a day went by I didn't think about that gray-haired SOB down in San Diego. Seven in the morning till nine thirty, ten o'clock at night. I'm in their faces screaming and yelling, coaching! Guy next door said, I'd love to watch him leaving your room wiping his spit off their glasses. <laughs> and a reporter said to my captain one time, what's the secret of your coach's success? The kid said, terror. <laughs> she wasn't lying. Hey. She's the chairman of the speech department and the chancellor of women's studies at San Francisco State College today. Didn't do her a hell of a lot of harm. <laughs> a little bruise on her butt, perhaps. That's about it. You know. I always felt so sorry for Bobby Knight. You know, they fired him for choking just the one guy. <laughs> and it was a guy. <laughs> Seven in the morning till nine thirty at night. Every you know, on and on. I don't eat all day either. I'm a functioning alcoholic. I don't touch food all day. Drink four hundred cups of coffee, ah ah ah, and stay pissed off. <laughs> and out in the glove compartment of the car, waiting for me all day. Seal unbroken. Never opened it. In the glove compartment is a half a pint of hot vodka. Getting hotter. So anyway, it must be an Al-Anon. Oh, I love talking about hot vodka at Al-Anon. I mean, they go, eh, eh, eh. But you and I, oh, oh, oh. They would just call to me all day from the glove compartment. Go get him, Cliff, baby. I'm waiting, darling. <laughs> and I lurch out to that car at 9.39. My old 58 Chevy station wagon, my surfing car. This is, we're talking about the late 60s. We're talking about a 58 Chevy now, okay? And I open up that hot vodka and uh, 
I always drank half the half pint, didn't you? First I would like that stogie, then I would just say, anything like hot vodka. It's in the bloodstream. Now, you know, when I got in the car, the nerves would be hanging out the end of my fingers that far. My brain was too big for my head. Every muscle in my body was in a knot. Man, that hot vodka hit the bottom, and then nerves go back up in the fingers. Brain would subside, and I'd puff on my stogie and think, damn, you're a good coach. <laughs> and I'd finish off the rest of that half pint and sit there in the darkness of that car, smoking my stogie. And I would have my eight minutes. And all the times I was a loser in AA, in and out and in and out and in and out, I never one time told you about the eight minutes. See, I don't know what your story is. This is the only one I have. But after I drink about a half an hour, something happens to me. And I have about eight minutes where everything in my life is all right. I ain't so bad and you ain't so bad either. You know what I mean? I am enough for about eight minutes. And I almost traded my life in for that eight minutes. And I would sit there in the darkness of the car. Now, I'm an alcoholic. I think there's a lot of alcoholics and alcoholics are a lot like me and a lot are not like me. But the ones I've known through the years who stayed sober a long time are people who were crazy when they were four. And I hadn't had a drink yet. A little milk, baby, but that's about it. You know what I mean? I was crazy when I was four years old. I lived on the edge of psychosis my whole life. I lived with anger burning inside of me. My whole, I spent my life getting even. But for eight minutes in a 24-hour period, I was okay. And if you would have stopped me on the street and said, what's serenity? I would have said, it's about eight minutes, 40 minutes into my drinking. Because that's the only peace of mind I was to ever know. And then I'd go home and really start drinking. And we had these five kids. And I'm a, I get drunk every night at home for the last six or seven years. And I'm a violent alcoholic and a critical, sarcastic mean, mean drunk. And I turned that house into an insane asylum. Everybody in that house was crazy. No human power could have relieved my family. It was too late. Uh, but I built that speech team. Dying of alcoholism. Living in the insanity of an alcoholic family. I built that speech team. You should have seen my kids. My oldest son, Dave, was working his way through high school as a hashy salesman. <laughs> Never had to give him any spending money, I'll guarantee you. Hit him up for a fifth about once a week. Yeah, Dad, what do you need? <laughs> you know, had hair down to his butt, you know. Head went like this all the time. <laughs> Called his mother, man. Hey, man, what's for dinner? Oh, he loved LSD. Oh, they're the weirdest ones, aren't they? They see those things. I'd be right in the middle of a sentence. He'd say, what was that? <laughs> of course, the shape I'm in, I'd say, I don't know. What was that? Where? <laughs> My drunken mother-in-law, she would say, I'll explain it. <laughs> My daughters had boyfriends look just like my son. The three of them used to get on the couch together. You should have watched that. And little kids just wet the bed and walked into walls. They didn't know what that was we were crazy. We were insane. But I built that speech team. And after a few years, my team won one of those speech tournaments. But I'd say a thing to the gray-haired guy, it wasn't time yet. <laughs> we know when it's time, don't we? Huh? Huh? I think revenge is better than Christmas. The next year, there were 12 or 13 or 14 terms. We won them all. We took first place in all of them. But I can wait. The next year, there was a tournament. There were 25 schools competing in the tournament. And my team scored more sweepstakes points than the other 24 schools combined. <laughs> then I went up to the gray-haired guy. Remember him? Put my nose right against his. Do you know where Oceanside is? 
now? And he just looked blank. He said, what are you talking about? He said, don't you remember about four or five years ago, you said to me, Oceanside, where's that? And he said, we just moved here from Nebraska. I didn't know where it was. And he was from Nebraska. Four or five years I was getting even. Lying awake in my bed every night. I'll get you, son of a bitch. He's down in San Diego. That's what my resentments will get me today. Same thing. Get the same benefit from them I did, did then. Anyway, Pat and I right after that had one of our main events. <laughs> which the neighbors have come to miss so much. Our neighbors never got television until after I got sober. <laughs> I guess you weren't you too. We were the entertainment for the neighborhood. We always were. Wherever we lived, we were the entertainment. Hey, he's coming back. He's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> they, all, they, all, they all had those Venetian blind marks on their forehead. You know, from <laughs> but that night, we really had a beauty I threatened to move out. Everybody said, yay! <laughs> and uh, actually, she forgot her lines. I hope she talks about that tomorrow, about blowing her lines. And so I did move out, and uh, everybody was glad. And I had said for years, but I just unloaded that witch and those long-haired, dope-fiend children, I could drink like a gentleman again. And I would gotten rid of them, and that wasn't it. I was drunk all the time. I was missing work, which I had never done. I went by the house one afternoon to harangue Pat about money. The hashy salesman was kind of bobbing in the background there, humming a tune from the planet Pluto. <laughs> and it's the dumbest thing I ever did in my life. I turned to him and, and I said, Dave, what's it like not to have your old man around the house? Dumb, dumb question. Because <laughs> he, he wasn't a kid that would look you in the eyes. You know, he was, he would talk to your shoes. And he had been mistreated by me physically far more than any of the other kids. He had reason to be afraid. And he looked at me with those big brown eyes, this 16 year old kid. He looked me right in the eye and he said, It's beautiful. And thank God for my son's courage. I went back to that dump of the beach and sniveled and whined and pissed and moaned and said, that woman's turned my children against me, you know. And But I went out and sat on the screen porch and I watched, which is still today, the most beautiful sunset that I ever saw. And about the time the sun was going down into the water, I had what our big book calls the moment of clarity. Polly, uh, my friend Polly, calls it the moment of grace, the gift. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. But uh, I saw myself that morning. I saw what my son saw. I saw what I had become. I've I never been an alcoholic yet in my life. We had a high regard, self-regard. Uh, we, we might act like it, but I've never known what really had high regard for myself. But I had had all my life three or four things about me that I had respected. And what I realized when the sun was going down that evening was that I had traded in those three or four things that I respected about myself for the privilege of drinking booze. And I went in the bedroom and dug out the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I had read in one of my travels through the program. Being an English teacher, I thought it was very poorly written. <laughs> read a lot better this time. And if you're new, I read the big book for three days and three nights. I called in sick. I didn't go to work. I ate a little bit and slept even less. And I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I read it cover to cover. I read every story. I read the appendix in the back. And in the second edition, there was a story called The Professor and the Paradox. He was another egotistical school teacher. And he's in the new, his story is in the new one, The Experience, Strength, and Hope. The Professor and the Paradox, and he saved my life. And on the 13th of January, 1970, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I was on page 63 again. 
And if you're new, page 63 has a little prayer, which is step three. I've always called it the formal terms of surrender. And I knelt down on that filthy linoleum floor on that dump of the beach where I was living, and I read that prayer out loud to myself. I read, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me what you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. And I've heard hundreds and hundreds of fist steps in my program through the years. And the number one defect of character of every man I've ever heard is self-obsession. Relieve me of the bondage of self. I looked up the word bondage when I was new. You know what it means? Slavery. Relieve me of the bondage of self. And I had an experience that morning. And you know, for like 32 years, I tried to tell you what happened to me on my knees that morning on that dump on the beach. And three years ago, this little girl in um, Ohio, she's 22 now. She was 17 when she had this experience. She was in a drying out place, you know, a jitter joint, I don't know. She was 17 in this place, and they gave her a book, and she would read the book, and she did exactly what I had done 32 years before. She knelt down and read the prayer out loud to herself. And in the Grapevine article, she said, I was engulfed by a great laughing love. That'll do. That's what happened to me. I was engulfed by a great laughing love. And that night I was at Bill Blake's house. My pal down here knew Bill. He was a little electrician there in Oceanside, California. Former wino, lived under the steps of the Seaside Hotel. Was a wino, skid row wino. He's the reason I always wear a coat and a tie because that was important to him. When I was in AA before, he always tried to help me. Don't you hate those fanatics? When you're a loser, when you're a loser, you hate winners. And he would pounce on me. Every meeting I'd go, ah! <laughs> and he would say stupid things. You know, like, you want to go up to Los Angeles tomorrow to a meeting? <laughs> no! What I wanted to say was, I can't stand you jackasses here. What do I want to go 100 miles to meet some warriors? That's what I wanted to say. But I would just say, no thank you. you know. And isn't it funny, though, after I surrendered that morning, I knew where I had to go. I went to Bill Blake's house, knocked on the door. Five-year loser. I told you the kind of loser I was. Smart-ass, overeducated, pompous, jerk, loser. Margie, Bill's wife, opened the door. Here I am on the porch. This loser. If you're new tonight, listen. If you don't hear anything else tonight, listen. I have never seen anyone so glad to see me in my life. This loser. She went, oh, Cliff, oh, Cliff. In the house I go. <laughs> Pours me a cup of coffee. Oh, this is wonderful. Oh, this is great. Bill's been nuts lately. He's had nobody to work with. Oh, this is so good. <laughs> then Bill comes in, Cliff! About a half an hour, I'm thinking, anything else I can do to help you folks out? (laughs) Glad to help any way I can. Cliff's here, we can start AA now. (laughs) But uh, two or three weeks later, I was in a newcomer meeting, and one of the other newcomers said, what do you mean this is a selfish program? And when a guy asked the question, I knew the answer. I got the answer the night I got here. They were tickled to death for me. They'd been praying for me for five years. But they were more glad for Bill and Margie. Because Bill and Margie knew the great secret. You can't have it unless you give it away. You can't stay here unless you give it away. My little sponsor had a deep belief that he taught to me. He believed that everybody who comes to AA has alcoholism. We can take care of that. He believed everybody who comes to AA has their own particular brand of nutso. You know, he said we got a wrench that'll fit every nut. <laughs> but he also believed that everybody who comes to AA has a gift of some kind, something that you can do well that'll make AA better. And he believed, and I believe, because he taught it to me that if I don't bring my gifts. 
then I have to go back out there and die. Now, you remember my sponsor was the worst speaker in the history of AA. Impartial observer down there. He used to say, I've talked everywhere in AA once. (laughs) He never could get out of World War II, never. But you put my sponsor in the front seat of a car with a newcomer. He was magic. Nobody ever escaped him. He sponsored 50, 60 guys by the time he died. I mean, and they're all still sober today. He, he just gets you in the car. Well, of course, he was very cruel to me. <laughs> well, he was cruel to everybody. <laughs> when he died, they had a meeting. It was huge. You were there. They came, all came down from the Pacific Group and everybody. The place just full of people. And I got to lead the meeting. I said, how many of you here loved Bill? Every hand in the room shot him. How many of you here had a resentment against Bill? Every hand in the room. <laughs> My sponsor, Bill, never had a resentment. He was a carrier. (laughs) I think the first five years, the nicest thing the man ever said to me was, Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. I told him, I have degrees, you know. He says, so does a thermometer. You know where they stick that sometimes. Dave, Dave was talking about it. I thought the first step was, shut up and get the car. But he had a colorful adjective just before car. Just shut up and get in the car. In the back seat, on the hump. Hey, there's a method to that too. I mean, if you're in the back seat on the hump, you become a 12-stepper. You find a new guy. Hey, come with us. On the window now. <laughs> but I, I can tell a standard, and I'd say nobody ever loved me more than that man loved me. He took me to a meeting every night for two years. He took me to a meeting every night for two years. And then these other guys started coming. Pretty soon we had a carload. Then we had two carloads. Then we had three carloads. And we went everywhere in AA. He took me to meetings like this. See, he took me to meetings where people were laughing. He wanted me to hear the laughter of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't live without it. To me, it's the spiritual part of the program. You know, the laughter is what cures us. The laughter is what saves us. Don't you like to get a new guy? You know, take me to a medium, take me to another meeting, take me, maybe about the 12th, 13th, 14th meeting. He goes, <laughs> gotcha! I gotcha now! Oh. And Pat and I, we get brand new little Al-Anons. We take them to AA speaker meetings like this. Get her in between us where she can't escape. <laughs> you know, and this blowhard AA is up here saying, I fell on the Christmas tree and smashed all the presents. <laughs> you know, we all go, ah! <laughs> this new little al sitting there. <laughs> Not funny to her. Oh, we take her to another meeting tomorrow night, and one night she throws her head back and laughs. I don't care, hey, or Al-Anon, we get you laughing, we gotcha. That's what heals us. Nothing I laugh at will ever come back and haunt me again. The stuff I used to lie awake at night with my teeth gnashing and my stomach turning, it's funny now, and the hell with it. I love the laughter of alcohol. It's what heals us. Uh, you also be sure that I work the steps? Uh, not to my satisfaction, to his. He was a diehard down the road, you know, you don't read the steps, you don't meditate on the steps, you don't listen to tapes about the steps, you don't put them in your navel and wait for them to flower. Uh, you do them! They either a change of attitude or a definite observable actions. You do them! I always loved this, this story that... I think about whenever I think about people in the steps nowadays, everybody's a philosopher about the steps. This old priest is back in the sacristy, and the young priest has been out in front, and he, he comes running back and says, Father, you'll, you'll never guess what happened. He said, a young man came in the back of the church. He was on two crutches, two crutches. He took some holy water, threw it on the right, and threw away the crutch. And he took some holy water, threw it on the left side, and threw away the crutch. And the Monsignor said, Ah, oh, it's a miracle. Where's the young man? He said, Flatten his ass out by the holy water. <laughs> 
You have to do them. And we did them till he was satisfied. And uh, whatever we did, any guy that my sponsor responded, he got you in the action. He got you doing things. Uh, he, you know, he believed that service is the way out of this thing. And so whatever I, whenever I had a problem, whatever was wrong with me, he told me some stupid thing to do that had nothing to do with what was wrong with me. Like she wouldn't go to Al-Anon. She had a mean mouth and all these dope fiend children. And I owed a billion dollars and didn't have a nickel to pay. And I'd go to my sponsor's house and say, You know what they're doing over there now? <laughs> Come on, Cliff, tell me about it. You know, bring me in the house and listen. You know how they listen. <laughs> well, I found it's good to make a noise once in a while. Like, huh. Mm. That way they think you give a shit. You know. uh, but I would find, you know, I really, I, I was had a nervous breakdown, and I would just finally, I just get through, just. <sighs> and he would say, "Go get Al and take him to the meeting." I asked the guy, what time is it? The horse is dead. <laughs> but remember, I was on my knees that morning. I gave up ideas of my own. So I would go get Al, whom I despised. He was a 10-year loser. I was only a 5-year loser. And he was a big blowhard. Driving to the... He had no driver's license, of course. I would drive out of me and listen to him all the way. Blah, 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 blah. And we would set the meeting up and make the coffee. Everybody come in, everybody go home. We'd set the meeting down, wash the coffee pots, load out in the car, drive him home. Blah, 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 blah. And I'd start driving home. And this feeling would come over me. Start right here. And then it would just spread out through my mind. The most... Better than the eight minutes ever was. Not only lasted 40 seconds, you know. I thought it's because I got rid of Al. But that feeling, he put me on the door greeting people, and I went on all the 12-step calls with him, and I got to see the light come on in men's eyes. We used to have wall talkers in those days. Guys that drank too long, they'd sit in the last row and talk to the wall. And you remember those guys. As soon as, the last, as soon as the meeting was over, he'd say, Go talk to the wall talker. <laughs> How are you tonight? <laughs> Good. Good night. Action after action after action after action that seemed to make no sense at all at the time, except that the feeling kept growing and staying longer and longer and longer. I was sober a year or so when I realized what that feeling is. It's the feeling of being enough. And I don't know about you, but I never was enough of anything in my whole life. But the actions I've taken in Alcoholics Anonymous make it possible for me to live almost every day of my life being enough. Al drank once more. He had 11 months and 18 days. And he called me, can you imagine, sobbing and crying. He was just beaten. And I went over to the house and, come on, get a shower, pal. Change clothes. We'll go to the meeting tonight. It's one day at a time. All right, let's get back in one day at a time. I'll come on, bud. And then suddenly out of my mouth, I said, I love you, Al. I knew it was true. I wanted him to be sober. As much as I've wanted to be sober myself. And that's why I'm here tonight. I want you to be sober as much as I want to be sober myself. And uh, the, little, the little sponsor got me into formal service. You know, I became a GSR, and a DCM. And a, the whole alphabet I did. The whole alphabet. <laughs> Ended up being a delegate to the conference uh, for two years. And uh, everything, I've never done anything in AA that hasn't enriched my life, but especially being, being the delicate enriched my life. Uh, Mother Teresa was in our area 
well, a few years before she died, she had a heart attack. And a couple of the doctors that I knew, uh, cardio people, and they, they said you couldn't be in the room with her and not know she was really a spiritual person. But some reporter asked her this question, and the answer was in the paper, and I cut it out and carried it till it just disintegrated. What she said to this reporter was, the fruit of faith is love. And the fruit of love is service. And the fruit of service is peace. I will comprehend the word serenity and I will know peace. And the fruit of service is peace. Uh, buddies used to kid me when I was back doing politics, you know. My buddies were in some other stuff. They used to kid me back in those days. How come you do all that politics, all that stuff? And I used to say to my buddies, I do this because I want AA to be here for my kids if they need it. And I want it to be AA. I don't want it to be some watered-down, psychologized bullshit. I want it to be the program of Alcoholics Anonymous the little electrician brought to me. I want it to be the spiritual steps that were given to me. And uh, our youngest son, I uh, gave him a 17-year cake a few weeks ago, Chris. Our middle daughter, Jan, had 12 years in AA and uh, got a bad back and, and took pills for a while and then drank, of course. And now she has five years again, and she does really well. And uh, the Hashi salesman, he's uh, one of the world's experts on growing coffee. <laughs> yeah, we used to say he was an agriculture major. We don't like to ask him what he grows. Uh, actually, he goes all over the world. Uh, he works with third world countries to help them grow coffee. So they don't have to be third world countries anymore. And he has f almost five years of sobriety. And he, uh, he goes to meetings in South America and Central America and Mexico. He speaks Spanish fluency. But his home group is in uh, White Salmon, Washington, a little town uh, just across the river from Hood River. But his second home group is in Zambia, Africa. He's going to be over there in a couple of weeks. And he, he's doing it all right. And... Uh, when we get together in our house, uh, you ought to be there. <laughs> this sick, crazy bunch that were full of anger, laughter in that house, you can cut it with a meat cleaver. And the love and the understanding that's, that goes around the room is absolutely unbelievable. No human power could have relieved my family, but Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Al-Anon, that's the help we've had. And so that's the kind of life we live today. Uh, your theme, somebody screwed it up on the, it said, going to know freedom and a new happiness. It's a new freedom and a new happiness. If you're new here, don't miss that. It's a new freedom, and I'd hate to tell you what my idea of happiness and freedom was. You would puke if you heard it. But the promises, promises a new freedom. Nothing like the freedom I let you look for before. And a new happiness. Nothing like the happiness I used to wish for then. Uh, I was sober almost two years. And I couldn't sleep one night, and I was reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. About three in the morning, I was all alone, and I saw the promises. If you're new, at the bottom of page 83 and the top of page 84, get a book tonight if you never read it yet, and read the bottom of page 83 top of page 84, the promises. I saw them. And I think I saw them at that point in my life because they had started to come true in my life. It said I was going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. That I would not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. I would handle situations which used to baffle me. Like life. Yeah. But right in the middle of the promises, that sneaky Bill Wilson, oh, he's so sneaky. Right in the middle of the promises, he tells us how it, how it happens. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. 
self-seeking will slip away. I'm still waiting on that. <laughs> so right in the middle of the promises, he tells us how they'll come true. We've got to get the hell out of ourselves and love each other and be of service to each other. If you're new tonight, you don't have to believe that all the good things that have happened in my life, and when you hear my wife tomorrow share her Al-Anon program with you, you don't have to believe all the great things that have happened in our life are going to happen to you. I didn't believe they were going to happen to me. I believed they happened to Bill. And that kept me in the front seat of the car for a year and a half. But you do have to believe that they happened to us. That a sick, neurotic, angry, crazy man lives almost every day of his life just like that book promised me I would. Happy and joyous and free. That's how I live and I hope you do too.